Okay, we're picking up the topic, uh, newness of the spirit. We talked about the various ways over the two, last 2,000 years that have come across how people can say they're walking with God. Everything from legalism by keeping the law. People have said you got to keep the Ten Commandments and they try to live up to the law. Well, nobody has ever lived up to the law and has ever made it through that. We talked about perfectionism. There are certain churches that believe that you can pray and come to an altar and come all the way through and you no longer sin. You make bad choices and you can make good choices, but you're no longer sin. That's the perfection, the Wesleyan group, the holiness groups, a lot of them. And then we have those who believe that you don't have to do anything. God is sovereignly uh, in charge and he's forgiven you and all you need to do is um, let God take over and let go and he, he on his own will uh, take care of you and take you to the uh, end. But we want to look at uh, what I believe to be the biblical way. Okay, let's, and it's the newness of the spirit. When you, were, when you became a Christian, you were born again. And uh, part of that, born again, Lewis Perry Chafer said, 36 things happened to you at the moment of salvation. Robert Gramacki came along and he wrote a book on eternal salvation and he listed over 80 specific things that happen to an individual when they get saved. Now, I don't know if either one of them are right. Uh, all I know is there was a drastic, eternal change when you became born again. You're a different person. That change may be gradual, that change may have been dramatic. I heard a testimony of a man who was uh, an alcoholic and he turned his life over to Christ and he hasn't had a drink since. Other people have had struggles. It's taken a while to, to dry out. But a lot of times the changes are drastic, but it's always uneven. And so uh, we want to look at it this morning. The question of all time is, a believer's sanctification is sovereign. God is the one who makes you grow. He's made the change in you and me. And uh, it is a work of the Spirit. So if it's the work of the Spirit and a sovereign act of God, what does a Christian do? What's his response? Do we lie in a hammock and do nothing? Are we to be passive and relaxed, relying on the sovereignty of God to set us apart as he pleases? Is it our responsibility to uh, yield and let God and let go? Uh, or is pro since progressive sanctification is a sovereign work of the Spirit, the believer is actually exhorted to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. The Holy Spirit employs means in sanctifying the believer, encouraging the Christian to make every effort to make this happen with the aid of the Holy Spirit. So let's just take a look at a few verses. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 12, 14. Wait a minute, let's go back to 2 Peter. 
got ahead of myself. Second Peter chapter one, five to seven. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. There's a key phrase in there. Applying what? All what? Diligence. Make every effort. Even though it's a work of God in your heart and life, your responsibility and my responsibility is to make every effort to see the following things happen. If they're not happening, we go to Christ, confess our sin, and continue down the road to make all diligence. We get pretty lazy in our Christian life. Pretty easy to do. Pretty easy to just get soft. Now, look at Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 15. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Receive peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness bringing up causes trouble, and by many be defiled. All right, what's the first verb in verse 14? Pursue. Pursue. What does that say to you? Somebody's pursuing you, what is he doing? Chasing you. This is in an uh, imperative mood. Pursue, chase these things. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So you're to pursue uh, your uh, Christian life. And, uh, and another key verse is Philippians 2, uh, 12 to 13. So there is a human element in this. It's interesting, we have a sovereign God who called us before the foundation of the world to be saved. What is our responsibility to that? Obey, submit. Yeah, believe. Commit. So this, the responsibility to us, to the sovereign God, call of God, according to the scripture, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Call upon his name. Repent. There's a human responsibility to what God has enacted. If you make it all sovereign, there's no human responsibility. If you make it all man, then there's no sovereignty. You can eliminate one or the other. But the balance is there. And that's a mystery that theologians have discussed for the last 2,000 years. And quite frankly, nobody has figured it out totally. Intellectually, there's been attempts, but the Bible teaches both. All right, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. 
So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, it doesn't say work for your salvation. You're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. But as we said earlier, a great transaction has happened the moment we believe. Many things happened at that moment. And that, those things that have happened in your life, all the ramifications of salvation, should be coming out and per, you're pursuing them and you're uh, applying diligence to these and you're working to make sure that all God has done for you will be lived out and enacted in your life and mine. So all the little things that you learn uh, as you go in your Christian life you did not realize. You probably, uh, one of the big ones is you probably didn't realize the moment you repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ for his salvation. You probably didn't realize that at that moment you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You probably didn't realize that you were placed in the body of Christ forever. You probably thought, now I'm going to heaven, not to hell. You may have got that truth down, but you didn't see all of the other fine points that are fine, but not but are drastic points that God did for you at that moment. And it takes you a lifetime to go through the Word of God and see that worked out in your life. Now, the Holy Spirit has provided in the believer... Uh, means, ways in which you and I grow in Christ progressively, uneven as it may be. There's ways that we can grow in Christ progressively. And this is pretty simple, and you've heard it before. The Word of God is the means, one means. All right? And let's see how that works out. How important is the Word of God? And how does God use the Word of God to cause us to diligently pursue, diligently apply, work out our own salvation? First of all, all Scripture is God-breathed and able to make one wise with reference to our salvation. How do we know what God did? Are you going to go to Buddha, Shinto, Muhammad, some philosopher. No, there's only one way you're going to find out what God did. And it's in the only book God ever wrote to man. It's called the Bible or the Word of God, Scriptures. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You know this one probably by heart. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly <coughs> furnished unto all good works. Wow. That's a powerful two verses. First of all, all scripture from Genesis to Revelation was superintended by God. In Second Peter we read that he 
superintendently wrote the scriptures using the personality, the educational background, and the culture of the author without being uh, dictating. I wouldn't be opposed if God dictated the whole thing, but he did incorporate the human element into the giving of scripture. Wouldn't it be a dry book? Number one, believe this. Number two, believe this. He incorporated into the life whoop and wharf of the individuals who gave it. There's some areas like Ten Commandments that are just written down, but it's interesting that it's written down through the personality of the person that wrote. You have Jeremiah who wept. You have Isaiah who was very brilliant and he has more new vocabulary words than any of the other prophets. He wrote brilliantly and if you just read Isaiah. Uh, you just read the beauty of the scripture in Isaiah. Think of Psalm 119. When he puts, puts everything down to the Hebrew alphabet and every little section is equal in the Hebrew alphabet and each sentence begins with that alphabetic word. What a piece of literature. And then you have Amos who is a farmer and who went up northern kingdom and preached. Now, so scripture is God-breathed. That's the word that is used here for inspired. And it is profitable. It's profitable when you're taught it. Clears things up for you. It is profitable in the sense that it's for reproof. It, correct, it challenge you against your own beliefs. System. We all have our own worldview. We all have our own belief systems. But when we read the Word of God, we are challenged in our belief system by the Spirit of God as He uses the Word of God. I mean, we've all been uh, challenged in what we thought we thought was right, and we read the Scripture and we say, "Well, I don't know." And the more we read of the Scripture, and the more we are are diligent to it, we say, "You know, God's right. I'm wrong." It is also, we read here, it also is for uh, reproof, for correction, for straighten us out. We get ourselves in a jam and it straightens us out. <coughs> and it's good for uh, correction and it's good for training in righteousness. The Bible will not make you, by reading it and believing, you will not become immoral. Interesting, isn't it? It's positive. It's positive in righteousness. It corrects a lot of things. So the Bible is profitable. Furthermore, that the man of God may be what? Perfect. It leads you to the highest level. Now like Paul said in, in Philippians, I have not attained. The Apostle Paul is still working on stuff. But he says, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And probably he was one of the greatest preachers of the church age, and probably one of the most mature in the church age, and yet he was continually learning. But the Bible leads us to that maturity. The Bible leads us to that perfection, even while we're down here in a cursed earth 
and still have remnants of the old sin nature within us. All scripture is profitable. Every part from Genesis to Revelation and no matter how insignificant it may appear to us, the loss of any part, including Mosaic Law, is a loss to the true believer. It's all profitable. You know, I uh, I go through all uh, I go through all uh, genealogies. You get into Second Chronicles, and you go through all those genealogies. I don't skip them. I I tempted to skip them, <laughs> but I don't skip them because I have one basic belief. It is what? <coughs> what? Profitable. All. Profitable. And all means all. That's all all means. So it's profitable. So I wade through it. And sometimes I, uh, in, in, in the morning, uh, sometimes I've got things to do and I, I want to say, you know, skip it. Or glide over it. But I try to pronounce every name as lousy as I am at it. Once in a while, I'll find one I have to look up to pronounce it. And I'm not very good at pronouncing words, so it's a struggle. But because I believe it's profitable somehow, some way. Look at James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Okay, the Bible uh, becomes a mirror. And... Uh, Prove yourselves to be doers of the word rather than simply a hearing of the word and deceive yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks in a natural face in a mirror. Interesting he uses the word man. Who has the most mirrors, the women's restroom or the men's restroom? <laughs> I heard a deal yesterday on a, on a uh, Twitter where the guy, a conservative guy, goes, travels a con. If you want this video, we can get it for you if you want to listen to it. He's a conservative guy, and he's a father and a husband. He has, I think, four children, he says. And uh, he goes around the country asking, uh, what's the definition of a woman? Nobody seems to know. It's what you feel like. And so he talks to psychologists, and he talks to uh, <coughs> talks to various people on the streets. A woman is whatever you want to be, whatever you want to make. If you're tired of being a man, you want to be a woman, you're a woman. And what, what, what's funny in this whole thing is he goes to Africa, 
and he talks to the people in Africa, right out of, out of the tribes that can talk very good English, and he says, what do you think that a man can make himself a woman? And the guy goes, he's crazy in the head. <laughs> But there is a difference between a man and a woman. And if you're a parent, you raise your boy to be a boy, and you raise your girl to be a girl. And you keep that separate. And you teach them the value of that. But you're in our school systems right now that this is the subtle, if not so subtle, teaching that's coming right down the pike and the result ultimately of the evolutionary thought that has permeated the entire world. So, uh, as it was in the days of Noah, you remember what happened in the days of Noah? Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, let's take a look at it. I'm way off subject. I don't have much time, guys. Physically, I don't have much time to go through all these things, so I don't mind taking Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The result, verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not overstrive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. This is more than unbelievers marrying believers. The word sons of God in the Hebrew is b'nai, Elohim. That term is used again in Job when the angels, when God appeared before the angels in heaven. And so here's what we have happening here. We have angels leaving their first estate and cohabitating with men. And we've had movie after movie where you have gods. Remember the Greek gods? They're half man and what? Half God. Half God. This has always permeated our society. It was so bad immorally that God took the judgment and destroyed the earth. Kept only eight people alive and kept every animal in pairs and destroyed everything else. Air breathing, not fish. Air breathing. Now when you go to the book of uh, go to the book of Jude right before Revelation, just uh, one chapter long. Pick a, we're going to pick it up at verse 6. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their 
proper abode, he has kept in eternal bounds under darkness for judgment of the great day. Who are these angels that didn't keep their proper habitation? The ones that married. If you go to Second Peter, it makes it clear that it is the angels in Noah's day, just as a sin in Noah's day. Now look at the next verse, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and cities around them, since they in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Do you know when that happened in the Bible? What do you think? When did that happen in the Bible? Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened there? Three angels. One was the son of pre-incarnate, son of God, came to Abraham's house. Remember? They came to Abraham's house. And, in, and here's a case where Abraham was hospitable to unaware that these were angels, first of all. Later he found out that one was the pre-incarnate son of God who stood with them and said, said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham's the father of many nations, so... I'm going to tell Abraham how I'm going to operate in the world. Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What's Abraham's question? Will you, if there's 50 people in there that are following you, what did Jesus say? No, I want to destroy it for 50 people. What about 45? You know why? Because Abraham began to sense <laughs> that the answer was not totally adequate. How far did he go down? Ten. ten. God said, if there's ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't destroy it. The next day when Abraham got up and looked in that direction, what did he see? Smoke. Smoke. And Lot and his two daughters were the only ones that escaped. And poor Lot's wife, she looked around and said, I can't leave Sodom. And she got frozen. And peel her salt. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way indulged in gross immorality, went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing punishment of eternal way. Yet, in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic messengers. So you see, they're, they're exhibit number one of what's, what God feels about these kinds of sin. Read Romans 1. When they rejected the Creator, God turned them over to what? To indulge in their own flesh. Women leaving the desire of women and men leaving the desire of men. You know what? They're a, you know, homosexuality and all this garbage is in the minority. 
that they're powerful in the influence that they're wielding. Thank God for uh, Kershaw of the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers who stood up and said when uh, the Dodgers announced they're going to have Pride, uh, Pride uh, Day in Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, and he stood up and said, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I don't go along with this at the risk of losing his job, and he's one of the best pitchers in the, in the major leagues. So, the Word of God is what changes people. The Word of God. What brought that up anyway? Did you bring that up, no, Ron? No, I didn't bring that up. Just to, just to piggyback on that, you know, when the, the demonic spirits, when Jesus threw them out into the swine, they knew their abode. They knew the judgment was coming. Uh-huh. It's just interesting how this all inter- Well, I believe that when Jesus cast out demons, he actually put him into the abyss. The abyss, yeah. They know they're finally... And in Revelation, that abyss will be opened up <coughs> in the tribulation. All right, here's what the Word of God does. What I'm saying is, oh, I know I brought up, there is a difference between men and women. <coughs> At least in our house... <laughs> Before we get out of the car, <laughs> down comes the mirror. When we get in the church, we look in the mirror. I don't. <laughs> Probably should. But I don't. So that's why he uses a man. Because a man, he just takes us a glance and goes. And we're thankful that the women look at them. Okay, I won't talk on that. <laughs> Hebrews, <laughs> Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. <clears throat> Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give account. The Word of God is living, active, and sharper than in a modern invention in Paul's day, or the writer of the Hebrews, of a short two-edged sword. You could slice this way and you could slice that way as opposed to the big broad sword. It was a weapon weapon in those days. That's the word of God. And here's what it does. It pierces as to the division of soul and spirit. Now we've had theologians for the last 2,000 years arguing, is the soul separate from the spirit? Are we trichotomy, spirit, soul, and body? Or are we dichotomy, soul and spirit? Together same and body. So theologians haven't always been able to tell the difference between the soul and the spirit. But the Word of God can. As tough as that is, the Word of God can make that split. And then he uses a physical one, joints and marrow. Now I'm not a physician, but I used to help my dad butcher pigs and cows. 
And you know, we'd spend uh, a lot of time scraping off the stuff off the bone, and we used it for hamburger. That stuff really binds together. Well, God can split that. Here's something else he does. He also judges the thoughts and motivation of the heart. I don't know why you're here this morning. I, I assume you're here because you love the Word of God, you love the church, and you love me. Now, I don't know why you're here, but I know somebody who does know. Because what does verse 10 say? There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's not one thought in your mind, one motivation that you have that God isn't, isn't, doesn't know. You can't hide from it. You can put a mask on in church. and You can do these kinds of things, but you can't hide from God. In fact, Psalm 100 and uh, what is it? What is that Psalm where it says, uh, he knows when you sit down? He knows when you rise up. You know where that song is? 139. Pardon? 139. 139, yeah. He knows your favorite chair. He knows how many strokes you brush your teeth. He knows all about you. Now, if you love God and you're walking with Him, that's not fearful. But if you're not walking with the Lord, that's scary. There's not one thought or motivation you've ever had or ever will have that God doesn't know about. So that's why the Bible's important. The Bible, when you look in the mirror and you start doing the Word of God, and then when you read the Word of God, it clears up your motivations, right? Are you bitter towards somebody? The Word of God will point that out to you as you're reading it. When you start saying, I want to do your will, Lord, and he says, what about Joe Blow over there that you don't like? What about that sin of pilfering away from on your income tax? What about that little thing you do in your mind where you have a little playground in a room in your mind that you go to now and then? Is that open to the Lord? He knows. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, as just, just as from the Lord of the Spirit. For we with unveiled faces, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the more we focus on that, the more we are changed from in our image, from glory to glory, we grow. That's why the Bible's important. The whole Bible, all of it, makes an impact on our lives in what we ought to be and what we will be. Does the Bible know when you're depressed? Does God know when you're depressed? Why are you depressed? you're not looking at him 
you say that's fair? My Bible says in Romans 8.28, we know, that's a word means we know intuitively, we know that God works all things out, whatever happens is good. You know, I think of our uh, brother Tyler. Why is he going through all this? Why is his family going through all of this? Does not God care? What's the answer? Yes or no? Does he care? Okay. Will he work it out for his glory? Yes. I'm going to talk about a little bit about a verse this morning in Hebrews 5.8. He learned obedience. This is a year in on a little secret. Did Jesus learn obedience? It says he learned obedience by the things he suffered. The answer is he's always obeyed. But you know what he learned? He learned the impact of being obedient and the suffering of the cross that he had to go through. All of us put together with all of our problems, with all of the pain that all of us have experienced, doesn't even touch minutely experiencing the full wrath of God for us. So we complain when on our back aches. God has a purpose in all this. And it will be for His glory and His honor. And the only way you can learn how God handles suffering, how God loves you in hard times, is in this life. Because once you leave this life, you'll never experience it again. Thank God for that. The Bible makes an impact on our lives, what we ought to be, and what we will be. Take a look at 1 John 2.6. 1 The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Okay, if you say you're a Christian, then how should you walk? Who's your example? The Lord, right? If you say you're a follower of Jesus, then how should you walk? As Jesus walked on this earth. You want another one? 1 John 3, 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. If we look at Christ and realize what He is going to do for us, we have this hope, and that hope is purifies us as we walk. An 
I have homely illustration of this when I grew up. I grew up at home. Uh, you don't smoke, chew, or dance, or go with girls who do. And uh, theater, going to the theater was totally taboo. If you went to the theater, you, you were sinning. So a couple of us, when we had our cars, sneaked out of Sunday night church and went to a show in Aurora, or in York. It was a Western. I wouldn't be afraid to show that Western in church, quite frankly, it was that clean. But I always thought, if the Lord comes, and I'm in this theater, I'm going to hell. It had a purifying effect in a negative way, you understand what I'm saying? But when you have the hope that Jesus could come every moment, you want to live for him. If my dad left and he said, I want this chore done, I'll be home at three. When did I do that chore? 2.45. But if he said, I'll be home at any moment, it was impetus to do it as quick as I could. And Jesus said he's coming at any moment. Brian. Yeah, I just heard somebody this week say, you know, expect Jesus to come back at any time, but plan that he's going to be 50 years down the road. You know, just have that planning plus knowing that he's going to be coming back. Yeah, that's what Martin Luther said. He said if he knew the Lord were coming tomorrow, he'd still plant a tree today. Uh, there's truth in that. You, you don't sit on your laurels and wait for him to come. You serve him right up to the time he comes. Okay, the other means by which we have uh, sanctification, which God's grace gives us a means of grace, is prayer. Prayer is a means of grace in growing in Christ and in working out our uh, salvation on and working out the purpose of our salvation. The Father has ordained that his children receive good gifts of God by asking for them. What does that show you? It shows you dependence. If you have everything handed on a string to you, you probably won't ask for much. Because you don't feel dependent on anybody. You, you yourself cranked it out. But coming to the Lord and asking shows your dependence. Now some of us around here have not received rain in a while. So we ask the Lord for rain. Why? Because he's the one that gives it. And it causes us to remember we are dependent upon the Lord. It's not our skill. It's not our ability. It's He can do it. I've heard people say in the good times, when we don't need rain, we got wells. Oh yeah? We're fortunate that wells don't run dry here. But it shows us our dependence upon him. As soon as you've been told by a doctor that you have a serious disease, 
you suddenly go to the Lord. Why? Because you realize you're dependent upon him. The doctor can tell you what's wrong and he can probably mend some things via surgery or medicine, but ultimately it is God who heals. It is God who heals. You have a child go astray, what do you do? You pray. Because you know you can't do anything, but you're dependent upon God and God gets the glory. Because you suddenly and I suddenly realize, suddenly realize that I am, I am, I am not dependent on what I can do. I'm dependent totally on what God does. So asking for him. Look at Luke 11.9 and James 4, 2-3. Luke 11.9 and James 4, 2-3. And I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And those are in the present tense in the original language. So it says, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Remember, Luke gives us the illustration later in his book where he says, remember the lady that went to the unjust judge and he wouldn't hear, but she kept coming and she kept coming and finally this ungodly judge, I'm tired of her, I'm going to give it to you. And if an ungodly judge can do that, how much more will a favorable judge who is fair and right give it to us? Okay, James 4, 2 to 3. James 4, 2 to 3. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. All right. When we ask, sometimes it's just personal. car breaks down and you ask for a Cadillac Escalade when you could buy a Bronco you know what I mean you we sometimes we ask because it's for our pleasure not for the will of God all right uh, we'll leave it there this morning I'll give you a five minutes three minutes extra